If you have your Bibles, we are in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. I began a sermon series in this letter uh, a year, uh, two years ago, February 2018. We preached the, I preached through the first six chapters and ended in October of 2018, so it's been a year and not quite a half since we've been here. We're getting back to it. My plan is from now until into early June or into June sometime to preach chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. That forms another unit. Uh, uh, there's a section of chapter 7 through 11. That's a kind of a full unit. Let me give you a, what might seem like a strange illustration to explain one of the central reasons I decided to preach through this letter two years ago. My first senior pastor was really difficult. And one of the main reasons, other than just my own stuff, was we just had elders who weren't shepherds yet. They didn't shepherd God's people. One man in particular was very, very difficult. Gave me all kinds of trouble. But tell you the truth, I liked him. I liked being around him, even though he was a a pain. Um, He was a dairy farmer, and so I was foolish enough to think that I could earn more of his trust and be able to lead him if I spent more time with him, so I offered to come out and help with chores. Uh, So I did, and I went out and helped him milk one morning. And I grew up in a farming community. It was nothing new to me, but I'd never been a part of the milking part of it. And what I saw kind of scandalized me. Before hooking up the milker onto the cow, he grabbed and began squeezing and massaging around the udder, the breast of the cow. And I felt rather uncomfortable watching it, to tell you the truth. Um, he did that several times, and he was teaching me how to do it because I was going to do it, so I had to ask him, why are you doing that? Well, he explained that he's checking for mastitis, an infection in the breast of the cow that causes swelling. He needed to know which cows had it so he could treat those with antibiotics, and if he didn't know which cows had it and he dumped their milk into the bulk tank, it would spoil the whole thing. Uh, What does that have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, Paul is that kind of uncomfortable as a pastor with us. He gets into our lives like a farmer, feeling and grabbing and uh, his people. That's what Paul's doing in this letter. I said before that Jeremiah was rebuking the pastors for being unhelpful, and an unhelpful pastor is a pastor who won't do that. He's got to be a farmer. Pastors are farmers. They need to know their people like that. They need to know which ones need antibiotics and which ones don't. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. So when I began preaching through this letter two years ago, I told you back then there were two reasons, two main reasons for preaching through it. One, the topics that Paul brings up in the letter are vital in our day. And he hits on many things that are very central for us. But even more than that, I wanted to preach through it so that we could see an example, a biblical example of the kind of pastoral elder ministry that God has designed his church to provide. They are like farmers who get into the nitty-gritty, even embarrassing details of our lives so that they can give specific personal help from Scripture so that we might live for God's glory more. And we're going to see that uh, Excellent pastoral detailed pastoring in chapter 7. Let me read, and then I'm going to pray, 
and then I want to look at uh, the pastoral goodness of this letter. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, if you remember, you probably don't remember from two years ago, Paul is responding in this letter to two things. He had uh, people from the Corinth church who came and visited him and told him things that were going on in the church, and he responds to those things. And then he also has received a letter, as we see here, and he's responding now what we'll see in chapter 7 to 11 to things raised in that letter here dealing with marriage and sex, later on in chapters 11 dealing with worship and uh, food and, and so on. So that's what's going on here. Paul writes, then, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, note that, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. God, your word is righteous, it is faithful, it is tested and proved true. Your commands are righteous forever, they are delight. So God, help us to delight in what we've just read and give us understanding so it may live according to it. So God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this chapter is built on the foundation that Pastor Jeff just talked about uh, from Hebrews. Marriage is to be held in high esteem. It's good. And so is the marriage bed, sexual intimacy within marriage. So if you know your Bible at all, these gifts of marriage and sex within marriage is a good gift. In Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone. God formed a woman from a man, brought her to the man. The man sang a love song over her, And then God declared, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's a a beautiful part of Scripture. It's telling us the goodness of marriage. So we read the goodness of marriage, and we see this throughout the Bible. In Proverbs 5, 18 to 19, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I could go on and on with verses like that in the Bible. Do you know those verses are in your Bible? Are you acquainted with the Bible enough to know that those kind of make-your-cheeks-red verses are throughout the Bible? In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible with language like that. An entire book. All right? So, but as you yourselves are personally aware, because God created marriage so central to us, and the pleasure of sex within a marriage so central to us that 
it is equally, it can be equally as painful and harmful. When sin happens within a marriage, ongoing sin, the pain, the loss, the grief, the anger, the damage can be great. Because it's so central and so good, the twisting of it can be so very painful and hard. We see the effects of it in our society today. With rampant divorce, rampant sexual immorality, our culture is eroding mainly because of sin within marriage, and particularly sin within the sexual area. So if you read 1 Corinthians 7 and you're tempted to say, Paul, stay out of our bedroom. If you're saying, Pastor, stay out of our bedroom. Don't you think it wise and right and helpful for a pastor to get this detailed in the area that is so central and can be so destructive? You yourself know, by your own life history, how very awful this area can be. And so, Paul is a helpful pastor. Consider the kind of detail he gets into in these verses. He's not only telling us that you should get married, he's telling us what you should do within your marriage, within your bedroom, within your bed. He talks about the frequency of it. This is a model of helpful pastoring. So we have a problem. We don't want to deal with the problem because it's shameful. It's embarrassing. You may not want to admit that your marriage is difficult. People knew what went on within your four walls of your home. It would shame you if they knew what went on in your bedroom or what didn't go on. It would be embarrassing. You don't want it to be anyone else's business. You want it hidden. You want it locked up. Sometimes we want the appearance of a good marriage, the appearance of a healthy marriage bed. We want to be seen to be righteous, though we're not. We have an inability to laugh at ourselves here. We can be very proud in this area. But we read the Bible. We see here within a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself, the church that he spent more time with than any other church in the New Testament. So he knows them. And he writes very detailed, very specifically about this area. Every person, every marriage, every family. There are some things within this letter that are so difficult, so disgusting that we barely have the stomach to read it, much less admit that we really aren't that different. Paul has to write about a man having his father's wife. He has to deal with incest within a church that he planted and pastored. He has to deal with sexual morality, adultery, effeminacy, homosexual sex. Later on in or in chapter 6, we have to, he has to deal with God's people purchasing sex from prostitutes. But not us. Not here, right? Not you, not me. We don't need this, right? You don't need this. We do. We do need it. 
We do need it. And so Paul is here providing us helpful pastoral care for the areas of our life that are often or can be both glorious and good or very destructive and painful and shameful. So Paul begins in verse 1 with something that's shocking, but not nearly as shocking what comes after it. You see in verse 1, if you're looking in your Bible, it's in quotes. There's some discussion here. Is Paul quoting what the Corinthians wrote them, or is he stating something here? I I think he's stating something here. I don't think he's quoting. Um, I'm not going to stake my salvation on it, uh, but I... I believe he's, he's saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The error he's addressing here uh, is a Jewish error. The Jews of this day, of Paul's day, held that it was sinful to not be married. So if a man or a woman were unmarried, if a man or a woman were not engaging in sex within marriage, if a man or a woman were not having children, there was something wrong with them. There was something sinful. So I think the Corinthians were writing about that, and Paul simply says it's, it's good. It can be good. He, he not only says that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, he tells us why. He says it, it might be good for spiritual reasons. If you want to give yourself to the Lord, if you want to seek the Lord, if you want to serve the Lord, that, that, that's a good reason to not be married. And I, I, I think there's an area of conviction there for us. Singlehood in our day is often entered into not for seeking and serving the Lord, but for seeking and serving our own selfish ends. We like the freedom of singleness. We like the lack of responsibility. We're afraid of the commitment of marriage. And so for selfish purposes, we don't enter into marriage. But that's not what Paul is saying in this chapter. We'll see this in weeks to come. It's for seeking and serving the Lord that it could be good. Also, if you look uh, to verse 26, Paul writes in 726, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So to remain as he is, if you're single, to remain as you are. Why? Because of the present distress. It seems as if Paul is writing what he's writing in this chapter because in the, what's going on in Corinth, it looks like there's some maybe great persecution for Christians. And so what he's saying is in light of the great persecution as a Christian, it'd be, it'd be much better to be single. You'd be able to endure it much better if you didn't have the, the weight of responsibility of a husband or a wife or children. Jesus says the same thing in Mark twenty four nineteen. In light of great sufferings for being a Christian, woe to those women who are pregnant and nursing. So the responsibility for spouse and children multiplies the great difficulty during distressing times. So Paul's saying it's good. So one thing to do is not take this, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, or later on it's good to remain single and say like this is the overarching command for Paul for the rest of church history. In light of the present distress. You guys can take that. Some of you who are younger may in, in experience increasing opposition and difficulty for following Jesus. And you might think then, it might be wise if I'm single to remain single, or if I'm a widow to be, remain a widow. Because it's much more difficult. 
So it may, it may be good. It may be good for spiritual reasons, and it may be good um, because of what's going on in the world. Now, Paul does say in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. He wasn't married. didn't have any children. He was celibate and single. He says then, continuing on in verse 7, that this celibacy is a gift. Now, in our day, there's this notion of singleness as a gift that really isn't in the Scripture. The gift here has to, be, has to do with being self-controlled sexually, that you aren't burning, as he says in verse 9, with passion for sexual intimacy. And because you're able to be self-controlled, you can remain single. So it's better to marry than to burn with passion, which means if you can exercise self-control in this area, it could be better to remain single. Paul would wish it. Why? Because he then can use his singleness, his freedom as far as time and responsibility to serve the Lord. This is a good thing. So we see the great goodness of serving the Lord. And if singleness can be an asset to that, then it's good to remain single. But if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry. We'll get to more of that in a moment. Now we should admit that those who can control themselves are very few. The vast majority of you and, and I couldn't control ourselves. And so we got married. And so statistically speaking here, you need to have some wisdom here. This isn't going to be for the most of us. It's going to be for very, very few of you. Now, let me apply this to our young people. Human beings created by God go through puberty in our early teens. Right? 13, 14, 15, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. So those desires that arise at that time become very strong. I'm not saying anything that isn't common knowledge here. If you're a boy who's 14 and you've gone through puberty, you often have one thing on your mind. Okay? Same thing for girls. So Paul says if you burn with passion, you should get married. Now, I'm not advocating anybody get married at 13 or 14 or 15. But we ought to be really careful to delay marriage into our 30s. Who can endure 20 years of sexual desire and not be in gross sin? It is impossible. Why do I say it's impossible? Because that's what Paul says in verse 9. If you cannot exercise self-control, does not Paul know us? You, you know that the word cannot is not an overstatement. You know it because you went through it. The average age uh, that men and women used to marry was early 20s, just half a century ago. Now it's late 20s into early 30s. 29% of people ages 18 to 34 today are married. In 1978, that number was 60. And it's no different within the Christian church. Very, hardly different. And anyone who has half of a brain knows that if you are a young man or young woman who desires intimacy within marriage, and you're waiting to your late 20s, that you are involving yourself in sexual morality. There's, there's, you cannot control it that long. Now, maybe there's a few of you who can withhold and exercise self-control, but I doubt it. 
And so I'm urging you as young people, <clears throat> you should be getting ready for a vocation. You should get the training you need. If you need extra schooling, you should get it. If you're going into the trades, <clears throat> you should get it. But you should be putting as much thought into preparing to be married <clears throat> as in preparing for a vocation and more toys and more snowmobiles and all the other things. Parents, please consider the spiritual well-being of your children instead of pushing your sons and daughters to get advanced degrees and better jobs and make sure that they're totally financially set before they can consider married to get married. Encourage them in this. Now, I can't go into the details of that, but I, I, I think that's just simple, isn't it? If we're going to take what Paul says here <clears throat> on its face value, those things need to be said and have the faith to live in. <clears throat> and, and let's be honest. For us as men and women, there is no replacement for the goodness and companionship and pleasure found in marriage in the workplace. Is there? Is there? Being married to your spouse, do you ever find that kind of fulfillment at your job? And yet all we do is push our kids to get a better education and more training to get a job and delaying the pleasure and companionship and intimacy of marriage, the joy of it. I think the only regret I have in my marriage is that I didn't get to do it earlier. That we didn't have more years early on. This is particularly so for women in our age. Women are being convinced that they will never find satisfaction within a marriage, within having and raising children they can find in the workplace, and then they find out a decade later that it's just the exact opposite. So Paul says it could be good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then he goes on, but because of temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you're a visitor with us this morning, you might wonder what in the heck you've walked into. I hope you at least can admit that what we want to be here is helpful to people who live in this world. That we actually want to help people who live in this world. That what Paul writes here and what I'm talking about here is meant to be really helpful to people who live in this world and in marriages and in a world just saturated with sexual awfulness. So if this is difficult, I would encourage you just to please be patient. All right, so we have here uh, a good biblical definition of marriage. One man, one woman, no polygamy, no polyandry. Polyandry is a woman having more than one husband. No marriage between two men or two women. There are people actually marrying themselves today. Uh, that's not allowed. I, I saw the looks on your face. That's a good one. Uh, there are people marrying animals and plants and even the planet. <laughs> All right. So one man, one woman, till death does us part. But when you enter into that covenant, you are entering into what we're going to learn next which is your body is not your own anymore. You lose authority, rights over your body. It now belongs to your spouse. 
So we are here running into something that is absolutely central to who we are. Paul urges next each husband, each man to have a wife, and each woman to have a husband. So he says in verse 1, it's good for you not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of sexual immorality, each, or if you want, every man should have a, have a wife, and each woman should have a husband. Why? Because God made us male and female. Because God made us, at the very core of our being, to be united, unless you can be self-controlled. Why is the temptation to sexual immorality so strong that every person should marry? Because God made us male and female. Because we're sexual beings. Because he has given us bodies with desires that are good. Your desire to be married and your desire for sex is a good desire. It can become a bad desire when it controls you and when it causes you to mistreat others. It can become an idol. But the desire itself is good. I'd encourage you as parents to not only talk negatively about sex and sexual desire. It's a good gift. And since it's at the core of who we are, the temptation to sin in this area is going to be great and it can cause tremendous damage. So what should we do? We should get married and have sex as Paul's solution. Each man should marry a wife. Each woman should marry a husband. Now, if you're like me, you already have questions and concerns and objections. What about school? What about finances? What about sport? What about music? What about living the good life free from a spouse and child for a while? My parents' marriage was rotten. I don't want to get into that. And on and on and on and on. But we're Christians. We live by faith. We live by faith in what God's word says. And if God says... Each man should have his own wife and each one her husband. We should check our objections and simply trust in God. I love the simplicity of this, don't you? I love the simplicity and straightforwardness of the Bible here. I believe Paul is being very, very helpful to us here. He knows all of the objections. He's heard all of the questions and concerns. He cuts right through them. He says it very simply at the end of our little section here, verse 9. If you can't control yourself, get married. If you are struggling as a young man or young woman with pornography, repent of it and get married. If you are struggling with lust or fornication or masturbation, the solution that Paul gives isn't a 10-step program, isn't making all kinds of promises to yourself, It is to get married. That's what Paul says. If you cannot exercise self-control, what does he say? Get married. So let's say you, as a mom or a dad, discover your 18-year-old or 19-year-old son into pornography. What's going to be your advice? Get married. Knock it off. And get married. Get out of the house. You're moving out. Get a job. Get married. This is what Paul is saying. He's a father here, isn't he? And he's a good dad. He's a good one. All right, so let me just encourage 
people who are married to help their younger children. Um, we do family worship sometimes at dinner time. We don't do it as frequently as we should. And often when we do it, the kids are talking. And I get frustrated and I tell them to shut up. And then I say, sorry for saying shut up, but we're going to keep doing it. And we're reading through the Gospel of John. And we read John chapter 8 this week of uh, the woman caught in adultery that was re- re- uh, dragged before Jesus. All right? And so the question is, of course, kids ask, what's adultery? All right? It's when somebody has sex with somebody who's not their spouse. What's sex? So I said to Manny and Manny, I said, what's sex? Uh, I, I did, and then I answered it. Okay? And then I answered it. I would encourage you to just be regularly reading through the Bible with your children because there will be questions that come up that you know you should be talking about that otherwise you'll never talk about. And so if you want to be helpful to your children preparing for the world, just read through the Bible. Just, we take little sections of time. We read like 10, I don't know, 20 verses that night. It wasn't a bunch. It took us five minutes. But one of my children asked me a question that I otherwise probably just wouldn't come out and answer. If you do that consistently over the lifetime of your child, there really won't be a question that you haven't asked and answered. The second thing you can do is look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians and live it in your marriage. If you want to be really helpful to your children as a, as a husband or a father, love your wife. Hug her in front of the kids. Cuddle with her. Be frisky with her. Make your kids uncomfortable. If your kids aren't going, Dad! Right? They need to be doing that. And, and wives, same thing. Be frisky with your husband. Love him. If you want to be really helpful to your kids, they should have stories to tell later on. You know what I'm talking about. This is the real bugger of my kids, preaching on these things. Okay. What Paul says next is utter shocking to our sentimental, romantic view of marriage. Husband, you have a duty to give your wife sex. Wife, you have a duty to give your husband sex. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, before I get into this, there are physical, medical reasons why this may not be able to happen in your marriage. Beyond that, well, we could also say Paul isn't here at all condoning rape or sexual abuse. To think otherwise is just wrong, okay? If there is any kind of sexual abuse within your marriage relationship, if there is any kind of rape, you should call the authorities. You should let us know, and I'll call the authorities. It's not what Paul is talking about. What I'd like you to consider, though, is how exactly opposite much of Christian teaching is in this area of sex. Paul here talks about authority and duty in relationship. He doesn't talk about sex beginning in the kitchen or about romance or about the husband doing everything right so that the wife is in the mood or about the wife cooking and cleaning and having everything right so that the husbands, well, husbands never need to be ready hardly, but... What does he say? 
Just give yourself. Just give yourself. You don't have to have your love language perfectly known and met. Just give yourself. Forget about his needs, her needs. You have a duty. Isn't that strange to hear that? Duty in relation to sex. Everything we hear about is romance in relation to sex. Being in the mood in relation to sex. Everybody having everything perfectly aligned in their lives so that they can have sex. And Paul just says, no. You as a husband have a duty to your wife. You as a wife have a duty to your husband. When you stand before God and say, I do, you enter into this duty. It's a covenant duty in your marriage. Paul says in verse 5, the only time that you can deprive one another is when both of you absolutely agree for a very limited time for devotion to prayer. But then come together right away again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Another way to say this is if you are refusing to give yourself to your spouse, you're playing on Satan's team. You see that here? Because we do have spiritual opposition in our world, Satan and his demons, who are tempting us, and we are open to this temptation, especially in the area of sex. And when we are depriving our spouse, we're playing for the bad guy. We are putting our spouse in a position of being very open to sexual sin. And this can go for men or for women here. I have heard men say awful things about their wives in marriage counseling and why they're depriving their wives of sex. And vice versa. And there's all kinds of what ifs. What if he's been mean? What if she is letting herself go? What about, what about, what about? And Paul just says, just give yourself. This is the gospel, isn't it? What did Jesus Christ do? He gave himself. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, of giving yourself and not withholding. Don't let go of the simplicity of this with all kinds of whatabouts. We just simply need to have the faith to live this. God's wisdom is so pure and good. It's right. It's lovely. It's perfect. It leads to the good life. To disobey, to have all of these what-ifs and what-abouts is only going to lead to more sorrow. What if you just implemented this in your marriage? What if you let go of having to have everything done perfectly in order to give yourself? What if you just did this in your marriage? So the devil's in this world. Your husband, your wife, you both live in this world. You are both wide open to temptation, to sexual immorality. You both go to work. You both have computers. You both go to the Y. There are other needy people in the world who are looking to hook on to somebody else. We live in this world, and God has given us a solution of simply giving ourselves to each other. So don't withhold. Don't make excuses. Let me close with a reminder of God's grace. Someone, I hope not, but inevitably after preaching this kind of sermon, someone would say, I just wish that you'd focus more on grace. This kind of complaint really does impact me. It does so in a couple of ways. First, it does make me look hard at my preaching and wondering if I've missed something. Second, well, going back to that first one, it does tempt me to not say these things that I need to really say, so please be really careful with that criticism. 
I think how what Paul says here and the need to preach like it is is actually really helpful to you. And I, and I do want to be very helpful to you. Second, it reminds me that when we say things like, where was the grace? And I mean this very lovingly, that we, very, we do have very little understanding of what grace is. What I hear often when I hear the complaint of, where was the grace? That we just understand grace to not ever say hard things. Grace is just synonymous with being nice. Or that grace is just the very limited part of Jesus' death on the cross. So when you say, where was the grace, what you meant is, why didn't you talk more about Jesus dying on the cross? Or maybe, why didn't you talk more about who I am in Jesus? Can I ask you a question? If the Apostle Paul was here and he preached these nine verses, would you say the same thing to him? This was a sermon. It was preached. And would you say to the Apostle Paul, where was the grace? And if you would, can I ask you, who do you think had the problem there? Was it the Apostle Paul or was it your understanding of grace? Paul is a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's a farmer. He's a father. He loves the people at Corinth dearly. He spent 18 months with them working as a tent maker out in the streets preaching the gospel, building the church, suffering loss and persecution for their sake to preach the gospel. He writes this letter out of grave pastoral fatherly concern. It is grace. These nine verses are grace. To say otherwise is to say something very negative about the scriptures. Now, I understand that a pastor could preach this grace and do it in a graceless way. I have attempted not to do that today. If you think I failed, forgive me. I don't think I have. But if you come to me after a couple days, I may agree with you. Give me some time. Of course we need the cross for this, don't we? Who can live in marriage, obedient to what here Paul says, without knowing Jesus Christ and what he's done for us? This kind of life is impossible apart from the grace of God, of just giving yourself as a husband or a wife, isn't it? But when you become settled in the fact that God didn't withhold his only son, graciously gave him up for us, then you can graciously give yourself to your husband or your wife. Of course this needs grace, and of course this is grace. So let us thank God for it. Let us ask him to humbly show us us our errors here, and let us plead with him for the faith to live what we have heard to the glory of God and for the sake of our spouses. Let's pray. Father, we love your word, but it is hard. And we thank you for the hardness of it. We thank you for making it so plain for not mincing words and not pulling punches, that it is a fire, it is a hammer. God, we know that the fault always lies with us and never with you or your word. Our fault is that we're often way too hard to your word. We are not as tender and open to receive it as we should. We are proud. 
But God, we do desire to live in obedience to you. We want to live this. We see the goodness of it and the wisdom of it. But God, we cannot do it apart from your grace. And so please, Father, have mercy on us. Please give us your grace that we might live this. God, I pray for those who are troubled by the preaching of these kind of things at a public worship service. I pray that you would help them in that trouble and that I or others could be helpful to them in it. And so, God, help us to be tender with each other. Help us to receive each other with brotherly kindness and tenderness and affection that we might be a people more united and loving. And so, God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I have two charges for you. One is when we talk about things like this, there's often a lot of guilt and shame. Many of us have been involved in sexual sin or we've been abused or, or, or rape, and there is all kinds of trouble here. We do have victory in Jesus there, okay? There is forgiveness. There is cleansing. There is healing. The second part of this is this text, as I said, is about the goodness of marriage and the marriage bed. And this goodness in verse chapter 7 is about giving. The husband is to give to his wife. The wife is to give to her husband. And that is because Christ has given to us. So we're just to imitate Christ here, leaving nothing in reserve. And so... Uh, brothers and sisters, in your marriage, consider what you can give this week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, be with and go with you all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.